This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Humans are tossing carbon into the atmosphere 10 times faster and in much greater quantities than at any time in the last 66 million years. It's a brand new experiment with Earth. We'll talk with the lead author of that study, Richard Zeeby. Then, with the turmoil in the Middle East spreading into Europe, Africa, and beyond, we ask two specialists on the driving role of drought, heat, and climate change. Our guests are analyst Shiloh Fetzak and retired American Brigadier General Gerald Galloway. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to your world. In the Guardian newspaper on the 21st of March, we find this headline, Carbon Emission Release Rate Unprecedented in the Past 66 Million Years. It then says, Researchers calculate that humans are pumping out carbon 10 times faster than at any point since the extinction of the dinosaurs. So to understand what the staggering situation means, we go to a new paper published the same day in the journal Nature Geoscience. The title is Anthropogenic Carbon Release Rate, Unprecedented During the Past 66 Billion Years. The lead author is Dr. Richard E. Zeeby. He's published or co-authored about 75 scientific papers since the 1990s, so I think we can call him an expert in his field. Richard is a professor at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii. From Honolulu, Richard Zeeby, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi. There's so much to discuss here. But before we look at what we know and how, is it fair to say this research tosses our human experiment with the atmosphere into a whole new game, really? I guess we have for a long time suspected that if even if you go uh, further back for quite a while, it's very difficult uh, to find an analog or a situation of a case study which is close to what humans are currently doing. So if the important thing about our current uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere uh, is not only the concentrations of the total amount, but what is really staggering is the rate at which we're doing it. And what we're trying to find in our geologic records are examples or case studies that would help us to learn better for the future. And what we know at this point is that the event that might be most closest to our current release is at least 56 million years old, and it happened at the Paleocene-Eocene boundary. And if we go back to this event, we are relatively certain that over this long period of time, the only example we can actually find that has uh, the most relevance, during which a large amount of carbon was released, and at a relatively, say, geologically speaking, at a relatively high rate. And that's 56 million years ago. Yeah, I know in the headline in The Guardian it said 66 million years, and I think many of our listeners would think we were going to talk about an asteroid and, and the end of the dinosaurs. But really, your focus is on this hottest spot that we know about since then, which is about 10 million years closer to us. That's correct. And, and the reason why we're focusing on this event is because we know that at the 56 million year event, uh, there was a large amount of carbon released into the atmosphere or into the surface uh, system. Uh, whereas 66 million years ago, at the end of the dinosaurs, a lot of things happened, which really complicate the whole picture. But in terms of comparing it to our current CO2 emissions, the best example we can find is the Paleocene-Eocene boundary, 56 million years ago. 
Well, you know, Richard, I've had a couple of scientific guests who describe relatively rapid global heating, say in 50 years or less, but they're always talking about a time when we move from massive glaciation towards a warmer period. But this PETM, as we've called it, that was a spike in global temperature when Earth was already ice-free. Is that true? Uh, That's correct. Okay. Now, the Arctic was already ice-free, and yet the temperature went up. Do we know by how much? Uh, The global temperature estimates of surface temperature increase during the PETM have been estimated at about 5 degrees Celsius. If you go to higher latitudes, which are often warm, uh, moist intensively than the lower latitudes, uh, you find some estimates of uh, higher global warming. But as a global average, it was in the order of 5 degrees Celsius. Which is far, far higher than what was considered dangerous at the Paris Peace Agreements or at Paris Climate Agreements. That's correct. Do we know how fast temperatures rose in the period that you studied? Right. So this is what essentially the core question of our paper. We're trying to find out over what period of time did this 5 degrees temperature increase happen. And uh, what we find in our paper is that the carbon release and the temperature rise, so the climate change, essentially happened over more or less the same period of time. And so we can now estimate that the entire, what we call the onset of the event, the start of the uh, PETM, took in the order of 4,000 years uh, or longer. Now, for comparison, uh, mankind has been releasing uh, greenhouse gases uh, over uh, a timescale of centuries or less so far since we see the largest effect of our emissions. So there's a big difference in terms of the timescale and as a result of the rate at which we're putting CO2 in the atmosphere as compared to the event 56 million years ago. Do we know where that carbon came from 55 million years ago? Uh, The best candidate um, is still uh, methane hydrates from the seafloor. So we also have these hydrates uh, at the moment uh, in deep sea sediments. And uh, these hydrates, uh, these are essentially, this is ice, and uh, in this ice there's methane included. And if you warm up the ice, you can melt the hydrates and release the methane, which then gets oxidized very rapidly into carbon dioxide. We have seen this during the uh, recent Gulf spill, where methane was oxidized very rapidly to CO2 already in the water column. And the release then of the CO2 into the atmosphere causes a large greenhouse effect. So one of these um, of the candidates of where the carbon came from are methane hydrates from the seafloor. Other hypotheses include additional terrestrial carbon that can be, be released from the biosphere uh, once the planet warms up. Richard D.B., how can we possibly know the carbon emissions so many million years ago? Right, and, and this was the tricky part of our paper. That's why we uh, focused and essentially developed a new method uh, to figure this out. So if you look at a radiometric dating, um, we can essentially date events um, in terms of their absolute age uh, with a certain error margin. And we can say, you know, relatively confidently, the PETM happened about 56 million years ago. But what we're talking about now are timescales of the order of 1,000 years. And you, you can't use simply radiometric dating is not possible to date timescales of the order of a few thousand years. And essentially, in our paper, we have developed a new method to come down to this sort of timescale, and that enabled us to conclude that the onset, the start of the event, took in the order of 4,000 years or more. Where did you get your samples, and how do you treat them to measure this carbon heating event? 
So in this study, we combined uh, two methods. One method essentially looks at chemical compositions of the actual sediments. And the data that we're using in our paper comes from uh, sediments cores that were drilled on the New Jersey margin. But we have combined these measurements with carbon cycle and climate modeling. And the, the trick that we describe in our paper is that we're trying to replicate with our climate models and carbon cycle models what we see in the sediments. And we can only get this or we can only replicate the data that has been measured when we include or release the carbon in our models and stretch the input over a timescale of 4,000 years or more. I'm trying to picture what that hothouse world looked like so long ago. Could you take a minute or two to just describe what it was? So the Earth, as you said, was warmer already before the event to begin with. And during the event, the whole planet or the surface warmed up by another five degrees. So there are studies and some estimates that it was as warm as allowing to have crocodiles and palm trees around the Arctic. So it was, it was a really different and warm place during the PTM. And one of the striking features of this event is uh, what we looked in our paper was the onset of the event. What we still don't exactly understand is how the event could take so long. And so once the planet had warmed up, the duration of this entire global warming event could be in the order of 100,000 years or more. And this, this is some of the issues that we're trying to figure out if some of those potential feedbacks that prolong this warming may also be active today. And what happened to the plants and animals during that shift to a maxi greenhouse world? So what we know is that there were substantial animal species migration uh, across the planet. We also know that there were substantial extinctions event uh, in the deep sea. We have uh, deep sea organisms, which we call benthic organisms. They live in the sediment, and these organisms are called foraminifera. And these benthic organisms uh, saw the largest extinction event uh, throughout the entire Cenozoic. However, there is relatively little extinctions um, on land. So if we compare this, for instance, to the impact that ended the era of the dinosaurs, this is uh, at the PETM. There were much um, less uh, or hardly any extinctions in the terrestrial world. That's amazing. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking with Professor Richard E. Zeebe about a hothouse world millions of years ago and what it could mean for our own future. So, Richard, if the carbon in the atmosphere went so high, what about ocean acidification? How does that relate to our current state of the ocean? Uh, this is one of the important implications uh, that comes out of our study. So it is relatively straightforward chemistry that the extent of ocean acidification and the impact on calcifying organisms uh, is directly proportional to the amount of carbon you put in the system, but also to the rate. So the faster you add the carbon to the atmosphere, which gets, then gets absorbed into the ocean, the larger will be the extent of uh, acidification. And now that we actually, based on our paper, we can make a comparison between the rate at which carbon went into the system 56 million years ago and the rate at which carbon is being released into the system at the present, we can only conclude that the effects on ocean acidification and on calcifiers will be more severe in the future because we're doing it much faster than the, at the event 56 million years ago. Now, you've touched on this, and perhaps we don't have an answer yet, but did you find anything we would call an abrupt climate shift, say within the 100 years we're now experiencing? 
At the moment, it is not easy to get accurate records down to, say, the order of 100 years. As far as we can tell from our records at the moment is that the transition from the warm climate to a really hot climate over a few thousand years seemed to be relatively smooth. But that is, of course, or unfortunately, no guarantee for the future because of the different speeds at which the planet warmed up at this time versus the present. Okay, Richard Zeeby, please tell us what was different in that ancient world that would not apply to conditions today. Yeah, one of the important differences is that um, before uh, this event started, uh, that we call the Paleocene era, there was essentially little or no ice sheets uh, on the planet. And um, the feedbacks that ultimately then caused the planet to warm in response to greenhouse gas forcing triggers a number of feedbacks. And one of the feedbacks that, for instance, we have today are these ice sheets, which have to do with the reflection of sunlight, but also once they disintegrate with a substantial sea level rise. So one of the things that we need to be concerned in terms of the longer-term future is the effect of our carbon releases on ice sheets and, as a result, sea level. If you look at many reports, including the IPCC reports and, and many scientific papers, a large number of projections for the future essentially end in the year 2100. And I always think, well, the world doesn't end in 2100. This is only two generations from today. So if we look a little bit further, say over several centuries into the future, this is when we're really going to see much larger effects of, say, for instance, sea level rise than during the next few decades. And what we learn from these, these ancient events is that, if anything, it is possible that we're still underestimating the long-term consequences of our fossil fuel burning. And in your conclusions, you and your co-authors talk about a no-analog state. What do you mean? If we look into the past, we're trying to find analogs or case studies that may help us to better predict the future. And we would be very happy if we could find a carbon release event in the uh, more recent past to which we could compare the present. But unfortunately, as we point out in our paper, even if you go 56 million years back into the past, that event was still slower in terms of CO2 rise than at our present release. And what it means is that there is a potential for surprises, of course, because unfortunately we don't have a good case study that would tell us in the next 100 years or 200 years exactly this will happen. So this is what we mean by no analog. At least in the, as far as we can tell, over 66 million years, uh, we don't have a really good analog uh, for the future, which is not surprising because there haven't been any humans on the planet before us, as far as we can tell. One reading of your new paper that I got is that perhaps we've been lulled to sleep by earlier paleoclimatology. We look back at ice cores, for example, and decided climate change is a long, drawn-out process, so we have time to change our energy systems and adapt. But you've said this research uncovers, quote, a fundamental challenge in constraining future climate projections. Can you elaborate further on that, Richard? The fundamental challenge for climate change prediction essentially is that most of the models, and, and I'm not criticizing climate models here because we're using them ourselves. We, they are good tools as far as we can tell, but they are usually tuned or, or gauged by the climate system as far as, as we know it from the more recent past. Uh, you know, some of these climate models include now case studies from the past to, uh, to better tune the model also to rapidly changing conditions. But there is a question of whether or not these tools that we're using are capable of predicting climate changes that are happening uh, so rapidly. What's been the reaction to the publication of your paper? 
pretty uh, it's pretty amazing. This uh, paper has uh, generated a lot of interest. Um, National Geographic has reported, BBC, uh, The Guardian, NSF, the National Science Foundation had a press release. Uh, my phone has been ringing uh, quite a while, and I got lots of emails, uh, phone interviews, so it, it's pretty remarkable. Well, at some point as you worked on the paper, you must have developed your own personal reaction. Are you worried that we are creating an experiment with fossil fuel burning? Well, I have been worried about this so-called experiment uh, for a long time. Uh, and for many of my colleagues, uh, much of what we're writing in the paper does not come as a surprise. And what is, I mean, because you mentioned experiment, I really would like to say that we are scientists. We are setting up experiments in order to make a controlled a study of something that we can, say, control in the laboratory. I really, and I know this is a very common thing to say, we are, predict, uh, we are uh, essentially conducting experiments with the Earth. This is not what we're doing. We're essentially just releasing, without any control, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and we see what happens. That's not a really controlled experiment. And, and so, yes, I am worried. And uh, this is one of the conclusions that comes out of our paper. Uh, if we look into these geologic records, many of these records essentially have climate sensitivities which tell us how much the Earth warmed for the amount of carbon release that are mostly at the upper end of IPCC projections. And so there is a possibility that at least in the long term, we may be underestimating climate change. But, but as I said, myself and many of my colleagues are not terribly surprised because we have been looking at these records for decades. This rather stunning new research paper is titled Anthropogenic Carbon Release Rate Unprecedented During the Past 66 Million Years. It was published in the journal Nature Geoscience on March 21, 2016. We've been speaking with the lead author, Professor Richard E. Zeebe, from the Department of Oceanography at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Richard, thank you for taking the time to explain this for us. Sure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. A new kind of creeping war is developing in Europe. It constantly threatens to reappear in the United States and Canada. Meanwhile, bombed cities spread across the Middle East. We hear rumors that climate change is a hidden factor driving Middle East discontent. Is it true? Our guest Shiloh Fetzak writes about deep connections hardly reported by the press. Shiloh provides research for a non-governmental organization called the Center for Climate and Security where she is a senior fellow for international affairs. Shiloh, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much for having me. Well, is the connection between security and climate change a relatively new discovery, or has it been building up over time? In a sense, it's been building up over time. I think that the sort of security community has been looking at these connections, um, at least since the early 2000s, particularly uh, in the U.S. Defense Department, but it's rooted in a much larger field of study that dates back more to the end of the Cold War around looking at the connections between environmental issues, environmental scarcity, and the potential for conflict. So the framing around using climate science, which we have as reasonably reliable predictions about future conditions in the world, which is more reliable information than a lot of the information that we use for security analysis and projections, taking that understanding about the future and looking at um, areas that might be affected, areas that might be particularly fragile now, how these might interact, how these stressors might drive 
additional concerns and fragility and potential conflict risk or conflict interactions in the future. So it's, a, it's kind of been a burgeoning field of study for about a, about a decade, and as evidenced by this conversation, is starting to reach more into mainstream conversations around the future security picture. But despite the traction that it's picked up, it's still somewhat a, a fringe topic on both the environment and the security side. Okay, I would really like to go through the stages with you of climate change as a driver. In the worst-case scenario we have for conflict right now, which is Syria, when did the climate begin to bring down farmers and agriculture in Syria? Syria experienced an extreme drought between 26 and 2010 that was is the deepest and longest drought ever recorded by what they call the instrument record. So um, in terms of temperature and precipitation gauges, that it was the most extreme drought in recorded history. And that led to a number of very profound impacts that rippled through the society and eventually kind of presented and had ramifications for the security environment there. So it, the security situation in Syria now has multiple causes, but the very extreme conditions uh, that particularly affected the east of the country, which is sort of the, the breadbasket, the agricultural region of the country, yeah, those ramifications we're still feeling now, both within and beyond Syria. So I guess it drove the farmers out in a kind of exodus into the cities, which were already crowded with other people, and, and that's where the, the mixing pot goes bad. Yes. Normally, Syria gets most of its precipitation over the winter months, but what happened in successive years was that the, the rains just simply didn't materialize. And the farmers there are used to, uh, used to drought. They cope with it regularly, but this drought was so extreme and so profound that it was simply beyond their capacity to cope. So the livelihoods in those parts of the country were decimated. Millions of people were pushed into extreme poverty, had no assets, no way of meeting uh, their basic needs, and really had no other option in terms of survival than to relocate to some of the urban centers that are in the eastern part of the country. So you had rural Sunni herders and farmers coming to the cities that where the sort of coastal elite live. And they were living around the fringes of these cities that were already hosting upwards of uh, a million Iraqi refugees, as well as Palestinian refugees. So they already were stretched to the breaking point in terms of their capacity to provide livelihoods and employment for people and to provide basic services such as water infrastructure. So it made an already difficult situation far, far worse. Let's talk about the freshwater resources that come in by river. In an article with Jeffrey Mazzo, you say more than 70% of the country's freshwater resources come from transborder flows, the bulk from Turkey via the Euphrates River. What is the overall status of that regional river system? Has Turkey taken more and left less via upstream dams? Is the precipitation lower? Or how much of this, I guess I'm getting, how much is water politics and how much real climate pressure? It's certainly both. Climate change is affecting the flows of both the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So those originate in Turkey, flow along the border or through Syria, and then flow through Iraq and, and empty into the Persian Gulf. And the politics of those water basins are quite complicated, both through, as you say, from a supply side in terms of in terms of the flows and how they're affected by rainfall variability that's driven by climate change, 
And as well, they have very complicated water management politics between the three countries. Turkey is keen to maximize its use of the water, given that so much of it originates in the country and they have a sense of having a right to it. They're also keen to exploit the hydropower potential, which is significant from these rivers. But it's quite complicated in terms of what that means for relationships with downstream countries. Uh, and as well, the way that Turkey is building dams and you know choosing how to manage those resources has implications for uh, its relationship with the Kurds in that region and as well its relationship with downstream states. So the fact that there's so much difficulty in the relationships and so much kind of fractured social patchwork in those regions makes managing a shared water resource very, very difficult and complicated. When rainfall is low, farmers all over the world try to pump up the difference from groundwater. Why didn't that work in Syria? Quite simply because the rate of replacement for the aquifers was completely insufficient for uh, the withdrawals that were taking place. So this, again, is a way of illustrating the combination between governance issues and the climate change impact. So on the one hand, you had agricultural policies that favored growing wheat and cotton in areas that were quite unsuitable for these crops. So you had a lot of really inefficient water irrigation infrastructure like a flood irrigation or open canals that had been promoted by the government. But when the rainfall couldn't support that type of agriculture, you got farmers pumping up, digging illegal wells and, and pumping up water in order to irrigate their crops much faster than uh, could possibly be replaced by, again, a real lack of rainfall during those drought years. It's a difficult situation because overextraction from aquifers is an issue in a lot of areas, and it just so happened in Syria that they were hit with such an extreme drought that it really impacted their ability to supplement the rainfall with aquifer water. Do we know, Shiloh, for certain that displaced Syrian farmers form part of the opposition to the Assad government or that they attempted revolution? When the farmers moved to form sort of rings of tent camps around the cities that eventually were involved in the uprisings, the spark that really lit off the public protest that then turned into a more organized opposition and more organized uprising and eventually a civil war. The incident that sparked that was a group of 15 kids spray-painted like a protest chant on a wall. They were apprehended. They were mistreated in custody. They were tortured, and one of them actually died in custody. And it was outrage at that heavy-handed response that sparked the initial protest, and that was in a town called Dara, that's the, in the southwestern uh, part of the country. Now... The people who were involved in the initial protests were probably not necessarily rural shepherds who'd come to live on the, on the outskirts of the tent city, but there were issues that were of concern to them, to those farmers and herdsmen, that were part of the initial expression of frustration and outrage that became part of the reasons that the protests sprung up. So whether it's to do with co corruption around well licensing whether it's to do with um, the sectarianism that often played into that in rural areas. It was part of the background of frustration and grievance that fueled those initial protests and uprisings. 
You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm speaking with Shiloh Fetzak, and we're talking about Syria as a case study of how much climate can affect security. And part of the problem we have, Shiloh, in the media and in the public is the difficulty of teasing out what violence has roots in climate change. In the midst of so many other possible causes we could talk about, how do we separate climate, or can we? It's not really possible to parse out one particular component as a cause of a particular incident of violence or something as complex as the Syrian civil war. You can never really single out one particular factor amongst all of the social, political, historical, ideological, environmental, economic, and other causes that are inherently part of a complex mix when it comes to any conflict, and particularly one where climate or environment might have been a component. I mean, even if you look at Syria and what happened there, yes, there was a really severe drought. Yes, that hugely impacted rural people's livelihoods. But it was happening in the context of other governance issues, which are very important to not underestimate the significance of, because the blame for the situation that eventually arose lies squarely with the Assad regime, and we shouldn't underestimate that. If you look, just uh, for example, at the drivers of migration, in terms of people's livelihoods being decimated, the drought was one factor. Another couple of factors were cancellation on government subsidies for diesel and for fertilizer, which both took place during those severe years of drought. And that was part of a larger shift away from government policies that subsidized those types of rural agriculture. So climate was one component in a context of a lot of other governance challenges. Those protests would not have sprung up if the Assad regime had responded in a more effective way to the needs of those displaced persons. And if it hadn't been for some of the sectarian dynamics that were at play in terms of the rural Sunni majority and the more elite coastal uh, Shia population, we would not have seen the particular mix of conditions that led to the uprising in Syria. So you can only really speak to climate as being part of a complex picture, something that pushes on the drivers of fragility and instability, but it's difficult to separate it out completely. Has the drought that helped wipe out so many Syrian farms ended now? They had a couple of dry years, again, uh, 2013, 2014, but 2015 actually was more of a return to a bit heavier rains. However, that hasn't necessarily meant that rural livelihoods have been able to spring back by any means. The infrastructure, the trade, transport routes and so forth have been very deeply impacted by the ongoing instability in the country. So while the weather conditions have improved, that hasn't directly correlated to an improvement in the security situation by any means. I was going to ask you about another Issue which you may or may not know about, uh, the United States Air Force recently bombed militant camps in both Somalia and Yemen. In addition to all the obvious factors like sectarian war, the huge youth, unemployment, extreme poverty, are there also climate drivers at work in those countries? Yeah, absolutely. Both are very water-stressed regions. Yemen is a country with a burgeoning youth population and quite insufficient water resources to meet the need for basic water needs in the country. So Yemen is very water stressed. Their aquifers are dropping down 
as of now, I think in the capital city, you only get piped water like one day a week, and most people have to buy water the rest of the time, which is very expensive. It's not a sustainable situation. And what that means for the conflict there is that even once, hopefully, eventually, the security situation improves, you're still going to be faced with very serious resource stress and the need for effective resource governance. And whether that can be managed and how well that will be managed in a context of a a recent post-conflict society is something that's of concern. Same situation in Somalia, very water stressed at present, projected to become more so in the future. You know, as it is, they have a hard time meeting the needs of herdsmen, agriculture, food security is a major issue for environmental as well as other kind of political reasons. And looking ahead at a situation that could eventually resolve, could eventually stabilize, potentially those resource issues and resource stress issues are going to be an ongoing factor that will make peace building and post-conflict reconstruction more and more difficult as climate change picks up pace. So those are both certainly areas of concern where we will have to pay particular attention to looking for ways to improve the resilience of the societies to more and more difficult climate impacts. And I think another factor is it just gets so hot that it's uncomfortable to go out. It gets to be too hot to work. The nights get to be too hot to sleep as climate change progresses. And I'm wondering, is there any study of the social impact, let's call it, of something that can drive people crazy and societies to the breaking point if you get these long heat waves with high humidity? I think you've seen a bit of unrest around this uh, that's taking place Again, speaking about the same region, there were protests in Iraq when there were heat waves that overwhelmed the electricity grid, which knocked out people's air conditioning. So there was riots in the streets, <laughs> protests in the streets, because this is a very essential component of survival in those heat waves. I think a lot of the areas that are projected to experience humidity that's beyond human bodies' capacity heat and humidity that's beyond human body's capacity to um, sweat out or, or ventilate. I don't know that there have been any studies in particular around the social implications of this, but it's recognized as something that will be very, very difficult to deal with. Again, not impossible because there might be ways of improving how buildings are cooled. It might just be a fact that during those times people need to stay inside. We can see it as something that would add stress to systems that are already struggling. So in you know, Bahrain or in Saudi Arabia or some of the, the places that are projected to be particularly affected by this heat and humidity, it's something that if we're thinking ahead and are able to prepare for to the best of our ability, we might be able to cope with. But it's something that we need to be aware of as a, as a potential stressor. And Shiloh Fetzak, you also contribute research to at least one other organization. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, the International Alert is a London-based peace-building organization that has a number of field offices in areas that are conflict-affected or post-conflict societies or, or places that are uh, experiencing fragility. So they look quite carefully at the peace-building side of this issue around understanding how specifically environmental factors and resource factors and how those are governed and managed by societies, who's left out, who's affected by those decision-making 
they look very carefully at how this will play out in areas that are particularly fragile or potentially prone to experiencing some of the adverse security impacts from climate change. What is really happening at the Center for Climate and Security? What does the organization do? Well, it acts as a nexus for the climate security research community. There are a lot of very valuable discussion forums that take place under the rubric of various groups that that the Center for Climate and Security runs. Um, It produces research, so they've done some interesting work around climate change in the Arab Spring, around the U.S. pivot to Asia and the climate implications for that and things that the U.S. government needs to be aware of and acting on and are looking really kind of at the forefront of research on these topics and generating really concrete and specific policy recommendations for governments that understand that there's a connection here, who've been thinking about it for some time, but might not necessarily be in a position to leverage the specific types of actions that need to happen. So they're, they're filling a, a research and a policy and a communications gap that exists. You and your colleagues, including Francesco Femia, have sent me a good list of articles for further research. Do you mind if I include those in my show blog at ecoshock.info? Oh, please do. That would be wonderful. And as we wrap up, I still have the feeling we barely touched a deep subject that breaks out in trouble and violence all over the world. Is there more you would like to tell our listeners or perhaps something that I've missed? I mean, I think one of the key messages here is that we're about to be impacted by events that are, in a sense, foreseeable, but in a sense are also going to catch us by surprise. So we need to really focus on building resilience and ensuring that the scale of these changes, which are going to be really difficult to cope with, are met with a commensurate level of response. That will leave us in a position to be able to roll with these changes, to cope with them, and to not be tipped into situations of instability or fragility that we're not able to cope with. So it's a grim and a concerning picture, but we need to ensure that the response is uh, at a level that will enable us to cope with these situations well. We've been talking about the climate flashpoint in Syria. As a fresh example of the threat of global warming to security everywhere, our guest is Shiloh Fetzak, an expert and analyst with the Center for Climate and Security at climateandsecurity.org. Thank you so much, Shiloh, for visiting with us. Thanks a lot for your interest. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. There are institutes where top scientists regularly prepare projections of a world thrust into severe climate change. You can bet there are parallel war rooms, if you want to call them that, where military plans out their role in a stressed-out warming world. Here to tell us about preparations and planning in the American military is retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Gerald Galloway. He's a visiting scholar at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers After 38 years in the U.S. Army, Galloway joined the faculty of the University of Maryland. He's worked at West Point and at the White House. He's always got a focus on sustainable water use. Gerald has three master's degrees and a Ph.D. in geography from the University of North Carolina. He's also a member of the Security Advisory Board at the Center for Climate and Security. Gerald Galloway, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, I'm delighted to be on with you. There are plenty of high-placed politicians, I'm afraid, who continue to question the importance of climate change to our security. Does the Pentagon think it's real? 
Well, the Pentagon certainly does. It, what's kind of interesting, if you go back to uh, uh, the middle of the last decade, right after Hurricane Katrina, and people began to look around and see challenges, a group called the Military Advisory Board, which is part of a uh, an adjunct to a think tank here in the Washington area, put out a report called uh, Climate Change and National Security. And in that, they indicated that uh, climate change was going to be a threat multiplier for our nation, that we needed to realize that in many different ways, the things that take place under climate change will make the security situation far more difficult, and that more attention needed to be given in the defense establishment to dealing with climate change. As a result of that, uh, the Defense Department did react, and if you look at the uh, quadrennial reviews, these reports that are put out by the Department of Defense every four years, the quadrennial reviews that have been since that time have pointed out that it is a a stressor and and that things need to be done, and in the second one that was recently released, pointed out that things are being done to address it, not only overseas and how we might deal with potential crises, but also in terms of the installations we have, which are the platforms for our military in this country. You've specialized in water resources for decades, and for decades we've heard about the coming water wars, especially in the Middle East. Have they arrived? Uh, No, Uh, and that's an interesting point. Uh, If you look back in the history of uh, water, there have been very few real conflicts over water. Uh, because everybody realizes how important it is, and and if uh, you play with my water, I'll play with your water, and it's a a lose-lose situation. There's very little win-win. Tensions rise as a result of water conflicts, where uh, you're taking more water than you're supposed to. Uh, You're you're hurting my agriculture. You may be hurting the, the people in my cities, and then that will rise to a certain level, and typically it will be worked out. No different in many ways than we have in the the Western water wars in in the United States, where we have rules that say the first in time is first in right, and they'll hold the water. As the water gets scarce, uh, they continue to use it. Others lose it, and that creates friction. But people worked out ways, as we just did in uh, California, to deal with this. I've talked with your colleague Shiloh Fetzak about the climate relationship with the civil war in Syria. It's not the cause, but it it certainly was a factor. What other countries do you think have been destabilized in part by changing climate? Well, I think that the the challenge you face is to find that direct cause-effect relationship. Uh, As you say, in Syria, uh, the shortage of water, the the reduction in crop yield in many parts of the world where the Syrians were relying on uh, import of products that were being grown in other places in the world, that causes problems. But we see the same thing in India. We see the same thing in Southeast Asia. And the potential exists anywhere because a drought can appear very quickly. And even if it's a regional drought, it can create instability in that particular part of a country. So it is real. It is happening. We know, again, uh, can't say that climate change itself was the totally responsible for the cutback in wheat supplies or anything like that. You can say it certainly created tension that then led to the disaffection on the part of many of the people and was a contributor to the, the conflict. Well, then we have sea level rise. I mean, it's going to affect U.S. Navy bases like in Norfolk, Virginia. But I'm thinking of the millions of people in Bangladesh. Sooner or later, they're going to be displaced by sea level rise in that low-lying country. And when they try to move, there's nowhere to go. It's heavily populated. People are impoverished. I wonder if that will eventually develop into a situation the military will have to watch out for. 
Well, uh, clearly, when you have a situation like that, sea level rise is causing displacement of people in coastal communities around the world. It is causing many problems in large cities that are happen to be located in coastal areas uh, where the population that is most at risk are the poorest. And so you're going to have resettlement in, in communities. And again, the opportunity for that to force instability in the government, to bring down governments, uh, is certainly there. And what the military is doing is, as we military members are out in different relationships with the countries, uh, they are describing the things that could be done right now to adapt uh, to the future conditions and to mitigate the potential problems. The United States is also very big in humanitarian assistance and disaster recovery. When there is something big, the people that show up with the ships and with the troops and the ability to do something about it is the United States military. And so as you have that, as you, you see these disasters like those in the Philippines and Japan, the, the U.S. military is going to be called upon more and more under the conditions that occur in climate change of increased rainfall events, increased storms, sea level rise. All of those things put together are going to put stress on nations, and the U.S. is going to be there to help them out. In spite of what many people say, it just happens that we are the people that is, are called when there is the, are these big problems. Yes, we have seen that around the world. I'm also thinking, too, about very tricky situations like the very big floods that happened in Pakistan in 2010. And that was a nuclear country, still is a nuclear country. There was some concern about whether these nuclear weapons can be kept under wraps. So I guess all of that kind of mixes together for the people who are doing the planning at the Pentagon. Well, that's the whole issue of a threat multiplier. The, the threat multiplies because we're creating instability. We, we don't know what's going to happen, uh, who will be in charge, who will be there to deal with the issues. The U.S. has gone in since the Pakistan flood and worked with the locals to see what could be done to prevent a reoccurrence, uh, to, to prevent not of the flood itself. Floods are natural events, and they're going to continue, but to make sure that people are prepared to deal with these floods and that when you do have a natural disaster, uh, the recovery can be quick and the, the tendency for the nation to come apart disappears. Uh, and so there is a lot of thought about that. These are our partners and our allies in many parts of the world, and, and we're certainly interested in helping them out. Uh, the U.S. is uh, it is much better to prepare in this country and abroad for a disaster so that you have created the resilience that reduces the risks and reduces the time to recovery when these events do occur. And so the military is looking out to see what is our relationship, what challenges do they face, and where might we be able to give them assistance, either through uh, federal agencies or through military support in some way, or uh, just being aware on our own planning that we might have to step in here. This is a particularly vulnerable area, for example. Now, as you know, Gerald Galloway, at Paris, there was an agreement that fossil fuels will have to be phased out over time. And on a tactical level, the armed forces have to work out how to power themselves in a world where fossil fuel use becomes constrained. What is the U.S. military doing to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels? Well, I think I'm proud to say that our military forces are probably setting the pace for the rest of the country in many of these areas. 
they're looking at the, the types of vehicles that have uh, less consumption of these fossil fuels when we still have to use them. We don't shut down everything we have right now. But how do we improve as we bring in the second generation of a, a tank or a vehicle to improve the efficiency of the engines, uh, helicopters? How do we reduce the consumption of a, an engine that has been in use for 15 or 20 years and we're bringing on the next generation? Let's cut back on uh, 25 or 30 percent on its fuel use. Looking at ways to, to fight war of the future, certainly one of the things that's looked into is what is that going to mean in terms of our energy requirement? It is not just the consumption of the fuel in terms of the climate change issue, but in terms of what it takes to move this fuel into various parts of the world. So the more we reduce our need for fuel, fossil fuels, the more we find ways in which to fight wars without heavy demand for supply lines that carry fuel abroad, carry fuel to contingency operation areas, the better off the military is. Now, on their fixed installations in the United States, there's all sorts of things that are being done to improve, first of all, reduce the energy consumption, conserve water, do all the sorts of things that any community would do, but because it is a nationwide effort and because the Department of Defense uh, has extreme reach out into various parts of the country, uh, it is being done across the nation, and it is being shared the ideas and, and opportunities with the local communities that surround these installations. And I'm hoping we'll see a lot more solar power and wind power for the military. Well, the military is using solar power. They're investigating everything that can be done. They've used biofuels, uh, as, again, as an experiment to see what could be done. You can see the energy consumption of military installations have been drastically reduced for the base operations types of functions, and that's extremely important. Again, it, it's not only a matter of reducing the fossil fuels for climate change, but reducing the use of fuels to reduce the cost of the military and to allow the military then to put uh, the monies they do have into the weapon systems that are needed. So it's, a, again, a win-win situation. We reduce the cost and at the same time perhaps create funds that would be available for things that are higher priority. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is retired Brigadier General and water expert Dr. Gerald Galloway. In the 1990s, you chaired a report for the White House on the Great Flood of 1993 along the Mississippi and Missouri Rivers. Part of the South have flooded again this year, and in, in fact, we're seeing more extreme rainfall events in many parts of the United States. Gerald Galloway, are we prepared for flooding well beyond the ordinary? Uh, no. Uh, the answer is uh, we are beginning to realize that floods are natural events, that climate change is causing extreme events that we had not seen in the past, that more intense rainfalls, just as those we had in uh, uh, Louisiana and Texas recently, extreme events that haven't occurred, at least in recent histories, are things that we're going to have to expect more often. And at the heart of all this is where people choose to live. Land use is a, is a critical issue in dealing with the floods in this country. If As we expand, as the population goes up between now and 2050, where are those people going to go? Are they going to go, as they, many people would like to, right to the coastline and, and hug an area where the sea level is rising and intensity of storms is increasing? Are they going to go to the uh, lowlands near rivers uh, and, and occupy there? Or are officials going to, to look at this and say, no, we need to think ahead, we need to see what might be happening in the future, and we need to control where people are going to go, and we need to take care of those people that are there now, either by shifting their location or helping them build up uh, so that they're less at risk to the flooding. 
and, and fortunately, I think that many people are moving in this direction. States are doing this. Uh, the president just issued a new federal flood risk uh, management standard that said, in effect, look, the federal government's going to stop investing in rebuilding people that are damaged to where they were. If you're going to be getting federal support for any sort of uh, flood-related activity, you are going to rebuild at a higher elevation so that you have less chance to be flooded if a bigger event occurs, which we would logically expect to have happen. You know, a lot of military planning is necessarily kept secret, but I think the climate response is not a good candidate for secrecy because we all face this global problem. I'm wondering if there's a way for the Pentagon to involve the American public more on this issue. Well, I think the Pentagon has done a, a good job of publicizing the activities that are taking place. And, and one of the reasons, certainly uh, in the continental United States, why it's so important is every military community is closely linked to a local community. We share employees. Uh, the people that work on the base or the post live off post in many cases. Uh, some of the workers are, are civilians and rely on the military for some services. They rely on the fact that there's an economic boost to their community by the military. So we're in this together. And, and dealing with climate change is not a problem. If you go to Hampton Roads, uh, the Norfolk, Virginia area, there's Langley Air Force Base, there's Coast Guard stations, there's the U.S. Navy there, the Army has facilities there. Uh, all of them are linked to the communities around them, and they are trying in a very open and a collaborative method to deal with what are they going to do over the next 10 or 15 years to deal with uh, climate change and especially the sea level rise that's occurring there. You can find the same thing in, in Charleston, South Carolina. You can go around the, the nation and see on the Gulf Coast and on the West Coast the same things. Have you talked with military people in other countries? Are they also aware of climate change and, and preparing plans to deal with it? Uh, most certainly. Our friends in the U.K. and Canada are certainly aware of this. The people in Australia have been dealing with some very significant uh, climate issues, and the military has to take that into account. Again, in the U.K., like the United States, humanitarian assistance and disaster recovery operations are a big part of what their military has done. And they recognize that's ensuring that the stability of a country remains. And so they're looking at what do they need to do with the organization, the structure of their forces and the, the mission operations that they're planning to ensure that they can react when uh, disasters occur. And, and knowing where they might occur in areas that are of interest to them is of, of great uh, importance. And, and they are working hard on that. Uh, as a matter of fact, on this uh, military advisory board that I mentioned before, uh, British uh, Rear Admiral Morissetti has been a sort of a companion as they've moved forward, and he's been working very closely with the uh, uh, Ministry of Defense in the UK in dealing with this. So I, I would say that they're as much involved as we are and they're as concerned as we are about the challenges. All right. Now, is your participation at the Center for Climate and Security part of that effort to bridge between military and civilian action on climate change? Uh, most certainly. And the work of the this, uh, Military Advisory Board and the Center for Climate Security, it, it becomes important for us to get out and talk to people. Education is so so important about this, to talk about the fact that uh, there is a linkage uh, between climate change and national security, that it's important that the military and those that support them, and that's the industrial base, that's our highway systems, all of those sorts of things have to take into account what's going to happen with climate change. Just imagine uh, last week, uh, I-10 in Louisiana was shut down because 
because of the heavy rains. That's not very useful if you're trying to deploy forces somewhere. If a, a runway is covered with water, that's not very good. And so spreading this information, working hand in glove with the people in the civilian sector and with the business community, NGOs, in dealing with climate change is something that's very important. And I think the Department of Defense is reaching out and our center uh, in terms of climate security is also reaching out. But it's a, it's a cooperative effort that everybody has to participate in. As we finish up, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I, I think you've nailed it. Climate change is a challenge. We tend to think of it only in terms of are we going to have too much rain or too little water in our communities. But it, it stretches far beyond. It can change the way in which society operates. And, and it is no secret that uh, when climate change has its effects, the people it's going to affect are those that are the poorest and the least able to deal with that. That in turn reflects itself in the potential for insecurity in a world that is uh, very fragile right now. And we want people to survive. We certainly, our nation has long been someone that's out there trying to help, a nation that's trying to find ways, solutions for people who have problems, uh, many of which we've, we've solved or are attempting to solve. So having the, the nation's military involved and thinking about climate and climate uh, in terms of national security is very important. And any, anything, anything that uh, you can do to, to let people know that this exists as a challenge is certainly appreciated. Our guest, Dr. Gerald Galloway, is a retired U.S. Army Brigadier General. He is now associated with the University of Maryland and advises various institutions, including the Center for Climate and Security at climateandsecurity.org. You can find links to the topics we've talked about in my own show blog at ecoshock.info. Gerald, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest. I'm Alex Smith reporting. One final word. Background news reports indicate the Belgian-French terrorists were planning an attack on a Belgian nuclear facility on the outskirts of Brussels, but they felt too pressured by police searches to wait for that plan. Washington had already warned Belgium of lax security at privately run reactors there. Footage of a Belgian reactor official was found in a terror hideout. A security guard for a Belgian reactor company was shot dead on Thursday. Two employees with complete clearance to the Belgian Dole nuclear power station left to join ISIS in Syria in 2012. What did they tell the terror group? Belgium is about the size of the state of Maryland and one and a half times the size of Wales in the UK. A plane crashing into poorly stored spent fuel there or a bomb inside a reactor could irradiate the entire country. Instead of confronting the mega-risk, the government of Belgium keeps extending the life of already old and very unsafe reactors. That's a kind of self-terrorism. Along with the 72 virgins, a dirty radioactive bomb or even blowing up a working reactor remains the golden dream of those who hate. The United States, Canada, England, pretty well every European country, and even dear old Australia are always prime targets for nuclear terrorism. We only have to slip up once, and they only have to win once, to illustrate why nuclear power is not safe for anyone. There is still time to shut down the nuclear industry. Don't say, I didn't warn you. Assuming nothing too big blows up in the next week, our next program asks the question whether, in the face of government unwillingness to protect a safe climate, is revolution justified? Stay tuned, and thank you for caring about our world. 